Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week, we will be talking about the standard building contract. Today's episode meets PC5 of the Part 3 criteria. So I previously covered the traditional procurement route and the typical contract forms that can be used under this route. I also briefly expanded on the different forms used with this procurement method, including the standard building contract. But since it was only uh, covered briefly, I thought to do a more in-depth episode on just the standard building contract, also known as SBC. So I wanted to make sure that I covered uh, the whole form to give you a better understanding of its composition. So I will be splitting, um, splitting it into two parts. Today we will be covering the contract documents, the obligations of the contractor, the program and control of the works. And next week I will expand on sums properly due, payment, insurance, termination and dispute resolution. So make sure to listen to both episodes to get the overall understanding of the form and how it operates. So it's very important that you make sure that you do listen to both um, both episodes uh, because it won't only uh, help you uh, understand the form in more depth and how it's laid out, but it will also help you um, not just to answer your uh, exam or coursework, but it will probably also help you later on when you uh, use an SBC in practice. Uh, so make sure that you definitely listen to both episodes just to get the overall view of this form. So let's dive into the first four sections of the form. So the SBC is a form of contract intended for traditional procurement and is published in three versions with quantities, without quantities and with approximate quantities. So the differences between them relate to the documents uh, which the contract sum is based and the calculation of sums due to the contractor. So in general, I will be covering the with quantities version, but mentioning where there are differences in relation to the other two versions. So both the with quantities and without quantities versions are lump sum contracts, meaning all the work shown, described or referred to in the contract documents must be carried out for the contract sum or such other sums that are payable under the contract. In the with quantities version, the work is described in drawings and in a bill of quantities, whereas the without quantities version, the description is in drawings and a specification or schedules of work. So if the description is inaccurate, then any additional resulting costs are taken on by the employer. But if the contractor made an error in pricing, then any shortfall will be taken on by the contractor. So if any variations are instructed by the contract administrator to the works, the contractor has the right to be paid any additional costs that arise from such variations. Now with the approximate quantities version, this is a remeasurement contract where only approximate quantities are given for all of the works um, to be carried out and the contract assumes that all work will be measured prior to certification. So this version is typically used where it might be difficult or impossible to measure the majority of the work accurately in advance. For example, if it's for a refurbishment works or repair works uh, following a fire or other damage, which is um, very difficult to assess how much 
uh, time will be needed, how much cost will be spent and how many materials will be needed uh, to be able to give an accurate cost. So that's why uh, it's better to use the approximate quantities in such scenarios. So all versions allow for the use of provisional sums where it's impossible to specify or describe the work accurately. So starting with the contract documents, as a traditional form, SBC is relatively simple in its overall structure and the contractor must carry out the work shown in the contract documents for the sum entered in the contract particulars and within an agreed time period. Uh, the main people to be appointed within this form is the architect or contract administrator and a cost consultant, also known as quantity surveyor. So under the SBC, the contractor's primary obligation is to carry out the work shown or described in the contract documents, and the contractor takes overall responsibility for ensuring that the standards set out in the contract documents are achieved. So the form assumes that all work is designed by the employee's design team and that the contractor will be supplied with all information necessary to carry out the works. But the contractor can sometimes be requested to carry out the design of a contractor's designed portion, as it's known. And the form includes a procedure for the submission of the related design information by the contractor uh, to be commented on by the contract administrator who retains the responsibility for integrating the contractor's design portion with the rest of the design. So the contractor is required to carry insurance to cover uh, their design liability. Uh, so when it comes to the contractor's design portion, this isn't always required in the SBC. It is optional, uh, but of course there is provision within the form if this is required. So the contract requires that the contractor starts work on an agreed date of possession, as it's known, and completes the works by an agreed date for completion. So there are provisions within the form that allow for the date for completion to be adjusted uh, in the event of specific events and for the contractor to pay damages in the event of non-completion. The SPC also allows for phased working meaning it's possible to divide the works to be carried out into sections and set separate start and completion dates in relation to each section. So these are known as the sectional completion, partial possession and so on, which I covered in a different episode. So a separate practical completion certificate is required for each section and a separate certificate of making good, but only one final certificate is required for all sections. So payment to the contractor is made on issue of the contract administrator's certificates, uh, which are set at predetermined intervals. So the certificates will reflect the amount of work that has been properly completed up to the point of valuation as per the terms of the contract. So say, for example, um, the work is, say, two months on site, the certificate will reflect the costs incurred and the payments due to the contractor up to that point and then so on and this will be done once a month every month until um, completion. So the contract administrator has a significant role under the contract including issuing certificates and the power to order variations to the works. Now let's look at the actual form more closely starting with the contract documents. 
So in traditional procurement, the contractor depends on a full and accurate set of information being provided in adequate time and to a predetermined pattern. So firm and full information at tender stage reduces the risk of uh, cost increases and program alterations later in the contract. So it's key to provide all the information at tender stage. So the formal contract documents should be executed before the project starts on site. Uh, the primary document when using SBC is the form itself, which comprises of the articles and conditions alongside various schedules, including uh, third party rights. So SBC with quantities defines the contract documents as the contract drawings, the contract bills, the agreement and conditions together with the employee's requirements where required, the contractor's proposals and the CDP analysis. Uh, the SBC with approximate quantities also includes the contract bills within the contract documents and the SBC without quantities defines contract documents as including the price document or the specification. So the first section of the form, which is the Articles of Agreement, are to be signed by both parties and witnessed. And this is essentially the heart of the agreement, whereby the contractor undertakes to carry out and complete the works in accordance with the contract documents. And in return, the employer undertakes to pay the contractor the contract sum in accordance with the conditions. Next, we have the contract drawings which are listed uh, under the third recital or second recital in the without quantities version. So the contract drawings should be identified precisely in the recitals, including revision numbers and so on. So these essentially are just the drawings prepared by the design team. Uh, then we have the contract bills. So these are the bills of quantities, which are typically prepared by a cost consultant. And the bills are based on the detailed drawings and the specification prepared by the contract administrator. So the contract requires both the drawings and the bills of quantities to be signed by the parties. And if there is an error in the contract bills, it should be corrected. And this would generally be the responsibility of the employer and carried out by the cost consultant. And if there is uh, any discrepancy between the contract bills and the contract drawings, the contract bills should take precedence in such an instance. Next, we have the employee's requirements, also known as ERs. Uh, now, these are documents showing and describing or otherwise stating the employee's requirements for the design and construction of the contractor's designed portion. And the form assumes these would have been sent to the contractor at tender stage. So the employee's requirements can be in summary um, format, for example, simply giving a brief description of the relevant part or system, referencing to drawings and coordinating dimensions, but most likely it will be a lot more detailed than that. One key item to note in the ERs is in what form the contractor's proposal should be submitted and what they should include, and it should also set out the information required to be submitted at practical completion, for example, if as-built drawings are needed. Uh, if these are not specified, then the contractor's obligation uh, is to provide such information as the employer may reasonably require, which is stated within the contract clauses. 
So after the ERs, we have the contractor's proposals, which should be in the format uh, and contain the information stated in the ERs. So it's in this section that the contractor should raise any matters relating to the contract data, where decisions may be outstanding from the employer, so that these can be resolved. So if there is an error with these documents, the contractor must inform the CA, contract administrator, of the proposed amendments to deal with any discrepancies, and the contractor is obliged to uh, accept the contract administrator's decision and comply at no cost to the employer. But if the contract administrator fails to reach a decision within a reasonable time, this could be grounds for an extension of time and or loss or expense. Uh, and last on the contract documents is the CDP analysis. So its preferred format should be stated within the ERs and should assess the value of employer-instructed variations to the contractor's design portion. And it would be used by the contractor to prepare applications for payment and by the employer in checking these applications. So if there are any discrepancies or divergence within or between the contract documents and or any further instructions, documents or drawings issued by the contract administrator, in such instances, the contractor is obligated to point these discrepancies out and any notice should be issued immediately upon discovery and include the details of the error or discrepancy. Now, if the contractor fails to point out discrepancies they notice or should have noticed, and as a result, the work has to be redone, then the contractor may lose any right to extra payment, extension of time and loss and expense. So keep note of this as it may be something you use for an exam uh, question or coursework. So other documents include the information release schedule, which states the information the architect or contract administrator will release and the time of that release. Uh, although it is a good tool to inform the contractor in advance when information will be provided, enabling them to program the work more effectively and reducing arguments and delays. Um, but the downside of the information release schedule is to the contract administrator, which if they fail to provide certain information on the stated date, this will then be a relevant event in relation to an extension of time which they will have to grant to the contractor. So the SBC also includes three forms of bonds, the advanced payment bond, a bond in respect of payment for offsite materials and or goods, and a bond in lieu of retention. All three forms are optional. Now, if the parties wish to agree to any special items that are different from the original conditions, then the amendments will need to be made to the actual form, and this tends to involve the insertion of one or more additional articles, or they can be appended to the form or included in the Bill of Quantities, although amending the standard forms is generally unwise without expert advice. So all documents mentioned, including uh, the contract drawings and contract bills, remain in the position of the employer, and must be made available for inspection at all reasonable times. The contract administrator should also retain a copy for reference throughout the duration of the contract, and the contractor must be provided with one certified copy and two further copies. Uh, the SBC also makes provisions for third-party rights, which provides the right of a subsequent purchaser to bring 
an action against the builder of the property uh, with whom they have no contractual relationship. So the employer in a construction uh, contract, therefore, may wish to assign this right to the person who may have an interest in the property. So the SBC contains expressed provisions which limit the scope for assigning contractual rights and neither the employer or contractor may assign the contract or any rights without the written consent of the other. So if something like that occurs, then that brings grounds for termination. So the SBC offers two options for the granting of uh, rights to bring claim to persons who aren't a party to the contract. The options are through the use of the third party rights provisions included in the form for purchases and tenants or for funders or through the use of separately published standard um, form warranties. So in the case of the third party right provisions within the form, uh, in the case of purchases and tenants, the contractor's liability extends to the reasonable costs of repair, renewal or reinstatement and excludes uh, other losses unless stated in the contract particulars. And in the case of a funder, there is no limit on the extent of the contractor's liability. So that covers the contract documents. Now let's look at the contractor's obligations under the SBC. So the main contractor's obligation is to carry out and complete the works, and they are under an express duty of collaboration with the employer and other team members, including the employer's appointed uh, consultants. So a key item to highlight is that the contractor is not responsible for the contents of the ERs or for verifying the adequacy of any design contained within them. So some watch points for the contractor's design include the contractor's liability for providing the contractor's designed portion uh, is limited to the use of reasonable skill and care. The level of professional indemnity insurance must be stated in the contract particulars. The integration of the design work remains the responsibility of the contract administrator and the contractor is obliged to submit further information as and when necessary from time to time. Now in terms of liability, the contractor will be liable if the goods, elements or structure is not fit for its intended use, irrespective of whether the contractor has exercised reasonable skill and care in carrying out uh, the design. So in terms of the contractor's liability for the contractor's designed portion, the liability is equivalent to that of an architect in holding themselves uh, as competent to take on the work for such design. So for an employer to prove a contractor has been in breach of that liability, they must prove that the contractor has been negligent. So the contractor also has a contractual duty to carry out and complete the works in compliance with the construction phase plan and other statutory requirements. So if any mo modifications are made to the construction phase plan, the contractor is obliged to send these to the employer and no claims can be made for adjusting to suit the contractor or subcontractor's working methods. So if changes to the construction phase plan are made from alterations outlined in an instruction, then the costs will be included in valuing the variation and the alterations will be considered in assessing if an application for extension of time is required. Now, in terms of materials, goods and workmanship, according to the SBC, 
all materials and goods shall be of the standard and described in the contract bills or in the specification in the without quantities version. The obligation is that of so far as procurable and if for any reason the contractor wishes to substitute any materials, this should be covered by a contract administrator instruction. If the contract administrator is dissatisfied by the works, they should express this to the contractor within a reasonable period of carrying out uh, of the unsatisfactory work and they must also state their reasons for the dissatisfaction. So when the final certificate is issued, it provides conclusive evidence that the contract administrator is satisfied with the works and therefore preventing the employer from bringing a claim regarding those items of work. So the CA should be um, very careful with what they approve and what they say they are satisfied with prior to submitting the final certificate. Now looking at subcontracting, there are two methods allowed for under the SBC. First is subletting to a domestic subcontractor selected by the main contractor, but with written consent from the contract administrator. And the second is subletting to a domestic subcontractor selected from a list of at least three names. In terms of responsibility, in both cases, the contractor remains entirely responsible for the performance of any uh, subcontractor. So that covers the contractor's obligations. Now let's look at program. So when it comes to possession of the site, this is a fundamental term of the contract and failure to give the contractor possession is a serious breach by the employer and gives the contractor the right to treat the contract as at an end or is entitled to terminate their employment under the contract. However, the employer can refer giving possession of the site or any relevant part under an optional clause for a period not exceeding six weeks and the tender documents must state that the clause is to apply. So the employer can also defer possession by notifying the contractor in writing and as a result, the contractor will be entitled to an extension of time and loss and expense. So once possession is given to the contractor and they carry out the works, they are then required to give possession of the site on the date of possession as set out within the contract. If there is a delay in giving possession, which is longer than the amount stated in the contract particulars, then the parties may have to agree on a new date of possession. Uh, so in terms of works themselves, the contractor is free to organise their own working methods and sequence of operations, given it complies with statutory requirements and the construction phase plan. So alongside the possession date, a completion date for the works will be set in the building contract. So the completion date is quite important as it provides a fixed point from which damages may be payable in the event of non-completion meaning liquidated damages are payable to the client at a fixed rate per week for the length of the overrun. So liquidated and ascertained damages may be claimed if the contractor has failed to complete the works by the completion date, the contract administrator fulfilled their duties with respect to awarding an extension of time, the contract administrator issued a non-completion certificate and the employer informed the contractor before the date of the final certificate that they may require the payment of liquidated damages or deduct liquidated damages.
So if these instances have occurred, the employer must then give notice to the contractor in writing and must be issued five days before the final date for payment. So they will need to give two notices, one as a notice of intention and another at the time of payment or deduction. So if the employer wishes to withhold or deduct all or any of the liquidated damages payable, the employer must also give a payless notice. But once the completion dates have been adjusted, the employer must repay any liquidated damages recovered for the period up to the new completion date. So the contractor is obliged to complete the works by the completion date and accept the risks of all events that might prevent completion by this date. Uh, so the contractor is relieved of this obligation if the employer causes delays or prevents the completion. So most contracts make provisions for the adjustment of the completion date in the event of certain delays caused by the employer or because of neutral delaying events, which is something outside both parties' control. So the SBC uses three terms when it comes to completion. The date for completion, which is the date agreed at the time of entering the contract and is entered in the contract particulars. Then is the completion date, which is the date for completion of the works or a section or any later date due to an extension of time or a pre-agreed adjustment. So failure to complete by the relevant date, the contract administrator is required to issue a non-completion certificate. And then is practical completion, which is the date at which, in the opinion of the contract administrator, the works or section are complete. So this is the most critical decision to be made by the contract administrator when administering the contract, as the consequences to the employer are uh, quite significant. So when practical completion is achieved, a number of items occur, including half of the retention being released for the works, leaving only 1.5% retention in hand, putting the employer at considerable risk. It kickstarts the rectification period. Uh, it expects the contract administrator to instruct all necessary outstanding works. The contractor's liability for negligent damage to the works commences. The contractor's duty to ensure the works ends. The contractor's liability for liquidated damages ends. And the employer will be the occupier. Now, when it comes to the process uh, with the extensions of time, uh, I have dedicated um, an episode to extensions of time uh, which is episode 39. So if you want to learn more about that, I would recommend tuning into that episode for more information. But for the purposes of putting things into context uh, with the SBC, I will very briefly cover it here as well. So the provisions for granting an extension of time are set out within the contract form itself. To gain an extension of time, the contractor must give written notice to the contract administrator whether or not the delay is caused by a relevant event, which are uh, outlined within the SBC form. So the notice must uh, set out the material circumstances and causes of the delays and identify any relevant events. And then the notice must include or be followed by uh, further particulars in respect to each and every relevant event, including the delay caused by each of those events and an estimate by the contractor of its effects on completion, so how long it will take 
and how um, long the extension of time needs to be. So the contractor is obliged to keep the contract administrator informed of any changes in the estimated delay and they are required to supply such further information as the contract administrator may at any time reasonably require. Now regarding the process with relevant events, some key items should be taken into consideration, uh, which include that the contractor will be entitled to an extension of time if they comply with the relevant events clause. When it comes to the relevant event regarding whether uh, to be exceptional and adverse, which in essence means extreme weather that was not expected at the certain time of year, and the contractor will need to submit weather records to support this claim. When it comes to the civil commotion and terrorism clause, it includes threat of terrorism and activities of the local authority in dealing with such threats. Also, effects of strikes uh, should be considered and be grounds in granting an extension of time. And force majeure is another relevant event which is used with a reference to all circumstances independent of the will of man and which is not in his power to control. But for a full list of the relevant events, I would recommend um, referring to the actual SBC forum to see the full list of what includes a relevant event and will be subject to an extension of time. So once the contractor sends notice for an extension of time, the contract administrator must respond as soon as is reasonably practicable and within 12 weeks from receipt of the required particulars. Now, if the completion date is set less than 12 weeks away, the contract administrator must endeavour to respond by the completion date. Then the contract administrator must either fix a new completion date for the works or section or notify the contractor that no extension of time is granted. Uh, the CA can also require a previous extension of time by fixing an earlier completion date relating to relevant omissions, meaning where work has been omitted through a variation instruction and the contractor should be notified of the reduction attributed to each relevant omission so they can claw back time that way if something has been omitted. The contract administrator has no power to grant extension of time except for the relevant events and with each case they should assess the effect of the delay on the contract completion date. Now if more than one relevant event case uh, occurs at the same time the contract administrator must apportion the total delay between the various um, contributing causes. So if one is a relevant event and the other isn't the contract administrator should give an extension of time for the full length of delay caused by the relevant event only and not the other. So that covers the uh, program section. Now let's move on to the final section of today's episode, which is uh, control of the works. So the contract administrator's duties to the employer are normally set out in an appointment document. Uh, I expanded on the contract administrator's duties in episode 36, if you want to learn more about the CA's role and duties. So the contract administrator has one of the most uh, key roles on the SBC, and they are responsible for issuing instructions and certificates and inspecting the works at uh, intervals. 
So direct control over carrying out the contract works is solely the responsibility of the main contractor and they are obliged to provide the contract administrator with reasonable access to the works, their premises and the subcontractor's premises. Now, if the contractor is to carry out the contractor's design documents, they must issue the relevant information to the contract administrator and they must then respond within 14 days of the date of receipt and can take three uh, alternative courses of action. First is to accept the contractor's design document and return it marked with A, or they may accept it subject to certain comments being incorporated, in which case it should be marked with a B, or the third alternative is to require the contractor to resubmit the documents with the comments incorporated for further approval and should therefore be marked as C. Some of you may already be familiar with this drawing uh, marking process uh, from projects you work on. Now, if the contract administrator doesn't respond within the specified period, it is deemed to have accepted the document and the contractor may also disagree with the comments, in which case they have seven days to inform the contract administrator of this. So generally, the contract administrator's instructions require some variation to the works. So under common law, neither part to a contract has the power to alter any of its items, meaning neither the employer nor the contract administrator have the power to require any variation unless the contract contains such a power. So under the SBC, the contract administrator has power to order specific variations, which are outlined within the contract form. So the contract administrator therefore can vary the quantity and specification of the works and vary operational restrictions such as access to the site. So the contract states that no variation may invalidate the contract or amend its quality. That's why the contract administrator's power doesn't extend to altering the nature of the contract, nor can the contract administrator issue variations after practical completion. So variations may result in an adjustment of the contract sum and give rise to a claim for an extension of time or direct loss and or expense. So the contract administrator may vary the works, for example, by changing the standard of a material specified, or they can add to or omit work, substitute one type of work for another, or remove work already carried out. So the contract administrator can instruct the contractor to open up completed work for inspection or arrange for testing of any of the work or materials fixed or unfixed. So the cost for carrying out these tests is added to the contract sum unless it has been already provided for in the bills of quantities and the contractor may be entitled to an extension of time and loss and or expense. Now, if there are defects, the contract administrator can issue an instruction to the contractor to rectify them and the contractor must comply within a reasonable time. Now, if the contract administrator and employer decide to accept the defective work, this should clearly uh, be indicated in the instruction and an appropriate deduction to be made from the contract sum. So if the defects are made good, the contract administrator must then issue a certificate of making good which is also required to issue the final certificate. So that covers the four uh, sections I wanted to mention today 
when it comes to the standard building contract. Uh, make sure to tune in to next week's episode for the rest of the sections uh, so that you can get a better overview of the contract form itself. So to sum up what I discussed today, as mentioned, the standard building contract is published in three versions with quantities, without quantities and with approximate quantities. It is a relatively simple uh, form uh, in its structure. The contractor must carry out the work shown in the contract documents for the sum entered in the contract particulars and within an agreed time period. The main people to be appointed with this form is the architect or contract administrator and a cost consultant, um, also known as quantity surveyor. The contractor's primary obligation is to carry out the work shown or described in the contract documents and the contractor can be requested to carry out the design of a contractor's designed portion. Uh, the contract documents include the articles of agreement, contract drawings, contract bills, employer's requirements if required, the contractor's proposals and the CDP analysis. So this is the SBC with quantities. For possession of the site, it is a fundamental term of the contract and failure to give the contractor possession is a serious breach by the employer and gives the contractor the right to treat the contract as at an end or is entitled to terminate their employment. Alongside the possession date, a completion date for the works will be set in the building contract. The completion date provides a fixed point from which damages may be payable in the event of non-completion meaning liquidated damages are payable to the client at a fixed rate per week for the length of the overrun. The contractor is obliged to complete the works by the completion date and accept the risk of all events that might prevent completion by this date. The contractor is also entitled to extensions of time given they comply with the relevant event clause and should send notice to the contract administrator which the contract administrator must respond to as soon as is reasonably practicable. Uh, if there are any defects, the contract administrator can issue an instruction to the contractor to rectify them, and the contractor must comply within a reasonable time. And once defects are made good, the contract administrator can then issue a certificate of making good, which is also required to issue the final certificate. As always, I like to provide you guys with a scenario just to put what I just went through into context. So today's scenario is that uh, our clients are owners of a fabric factory and as part of their requirements from the contractor, they wanted them to relocate an existing counter and uh, replace uh, some quarry tiles that were previously drilled um, so they should be um, made good and filled by the contractor. But um, the client is unhappy with the finished quality and feels the replacement of the tiles should be carried out at no additional cost. Um, in this scenario, the contractor stated that they carried out the work as instructed. And in their view, the replacement of the tiles uh, would incur an additional cost. Um, now, when it comes to the work to be done to replace the tiles, uh, this work will need to be carried out on a Sunday so as not to disrupt any trading operations. 
because any other day you will encounter considerable costs and losses to the client. So the contract administrator, which was our practice, issued the practical completion certificate indicating that uh, we are satisfied with the quality of workmanship. So as part of the actions you need to take is what actions the practice needs to take in response to this. What is the correct assessment of the situation? Uh, you should also um, prepare a response to the client and the contractor, setting out what is the contractual position and what the next step should be. And you will also be expected to set out any actions that should be taken before these responses are sent out. So you would start firstly by responding back to your manager and saying um, that your thoughts and suggestions when it comes to the incident uh, at the project is that uh, we should refer back to the contract documentation with regards to the employer's requirements. So did we, um, as a practice, include within them an item stating that the contractor would have to replace uh, the tiles once the existing counter was moved? Uh, if the works weren't described correctly in the express terms within the building contract, then the contractor will not be liable to pay for additional costs. But since as a practice uh, we issued the certificate of practical completion, we immediately ended the contractor's liability for liquidated damages and the contractor is no longer required to progress the works regularly and diligently. So the, the employer will be liable from here on for insuring the works. So we should inform our professional indemnity insurance of a possible claim since the client may accuse us for issuing the certificate too quickly um, without... Um, inspecting the works properly and for placing them in a very risky position and us at a claims position. So we may be accused of professional misconduct and therefore we should go over our appointment documentation listing our obligations and duties and dispute uh, processes. So since the defect was instructed to be made good before um, practical completion certificate was issued, and can't be included within the defects liability period as a defect to be rectified. So the contractor is under no obligation to rectify such defect and we are currently liable for issuing uh, the practical completion certificate uh, causing possible issues in calculating liquidated damages. So before issuing the practical completion certificate we should have uh, made a final thorough site inspection where we would have seen um, the filled in drill holes in the query tiles and would have not issued the certificate. Potentially we were pressured into issuing the practical completion certificate by the client uh, and if that was the case we should have informed them in writing of the potential problems of issuing practical completion early and obtaining written consent from them to certify the practical completion certificate and obtaining agreement from the contractor that the works will be completed and that they will rectify any defects. Or if we were unclear of the issues of certifying the practical completion certificate early, uh, we should have advised the client to seek uh, legal advice. 
So that covers the first two parts of um, setting out the actions and the correct assessment of the situation. Now, uh, you should look to prepare a response to the client and the contractor with regards to next steps. So you could start by preparing a response saying that we would like to set out the current contractual position we are facing with regards to the relocation of the existing counterworks and the steps moving forward. So completely removing the tiles will probably be more than a few days work and we may also encounter uh, a considerable amount of additional costs. So maybe we can recommend that the client looks into alternatives that may remedy the defect in a more aesthetically pleasing manner. But if the full description of the relocation of the existing counter making good of the query tiles was stated um, and with accordance to the contract, then it is the contractor's liability to bear um, any additional costs in replacing the tiles and making them good. So between uh, our practice, the contractor and the client, we should all discuss and agree the approach we will carry uh, forward and have this resolved as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, so it's in everyone's interests. And then lastly, when it comes to any further actions that need to be taken before this response is sent to the client and the contractor, uh, as a practice, we should run through the employer's requirements and the contract documentation to determine whether the stated procedure for the relocation of the existing counter and replacement of the tiles were cl clearly outlined within them. And if so, we can immediately relieve the client of any additional costs and it will be the contractor's obligation to carry out and rectify the defects under no extra cost to the employer. Otherwise, it may be the responsibility of the client to rectify the defects and possibly appoint another contractor to carry out these works. In case the contractor is not willing to do so, since they will not be obligated to. And that concludes today's episode. Remember to tune into next week's episode where I will be concluding the uh, rest of the contents of the standard um, building contract. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more Part 3 with me time. Thank you.